Hello and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. You know, over the 21 centuries of Catholic history, the church, like the people of Israel, has had a lot of ups and downs, declines and renewals. But the mission of the church has always been to help people reform their lives. The irony, of course, is that the church is often in need of reform itself, and that is tough duty. We are in a great moment of reform, and the gospel today helps give us an understanding of what God's asking of us. So let's take a moment, think about reform, past, present, and future, and ask what Jesus is telling us in the gospels today. You cannot read through Catholic history without coming across uh, reformations. Well, here's an example. In the religious life, the Benedictine order, which started in about the sixth and seventh century, it's undergone numerous reformations. The Trappists, that's the outfit that Thomas Merton belonged to, the Cistercians, the Cistercians are a reform of the Benedictines. You become an, a, a Cistercian because the Trappists, Trappists talk too much. And if you, if you think the Cistercians and the Trappists, who are really very similar, talk too much, then you become a Carthusian. These are all reformations of the Benedictine ideal. But they're not alone. In the 17th century, the Carmelites underwent the reforms of St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross. That's why we have two kinds of Carmelites in Tucson today. The Order of the Carmelites, O-Carms, who minister at South Point High School, and the Discalced Carmelites, who pastor at Santa Cruz Parish. <clears throat> Even the Franciscan and the Dominican orders were reformations of the monastic ideal, taking the monastic life, uh, prayer in, in choir, and taking it out into the streets. The Jesuits were a reformation of that idea, and it just goes on and on and on as the church unfolds in this complexity of this desire to serve Christ. You know, the universal church has undergone some major institutional reforms, the Gregorian reform of the 11th century imposed stricter discipline on the clergy, including mandatory celibacy. Celibacy had been regionally enforced at times, but it wasn't mandatory throughout the Western church. It was also a fight over securing the independence of the church from uh, various kings and asserting the right of the bishop, I mean the pope in Rome, the pope, the bishop in Rome, to appoint bishops throughout the Western church. Other examples of institutional reform were all the church councils. They're all called for a reason. Starting with Nicaea, or actually the very first council, the Council of Jerusalem, where they're deciding that you become a Catholic by baptism, not all this disorder and fight between baptism and circumcision. Um, in a group of human beings, you always need to reform. But we're going to talk about what is true reform, what is false reform, and the different aspects of reform present in the church today. Because we've also had some pretty disastrous experiences of false reform. One of the earliest ones were the Encratites, and they were associated with the Marcionites. And these are not household terms in the, in the second century. But they had very puritanical instincts. The puritanical has never been very far from Christianity. 
But the Ancretites thought sex was bad, so nobody should have sex. And so for, so therefore, you didn't get married and you didn't ha have kids. And by the way, you wouldn't eat meat either. The Donatist, a couple centuries later, uh, found the, their, their voice rooted in the failures of clergy. And what was the failures? It's when the Romans came to round up the clergy to execute them in a big... Um, uh, persecution in the middle of the third century. Some of the clergy handed over the sacred vessels and the books and made a sacrifice to the emperor, idol worship. Well, the Donatists then said, they can never be priests again. Um, you can't trust those people. and All their sacraments are invalid because holiness is the basis of the church. Of course, the, none of the Donatists had been martyred either, but they could find the, the essential wrong in everybody else. And then the Donatists were in turn reformed by the Circumcellions, who tried to forcibly circumcise people and would attack Roman legions looking for martyrdom because that was the surest way to heaven. Oh my, we'll go to the 12th century the, in the 13th century. And you have the Waldensian and the Cathars. They believed that creation was essentially this level playing field that was morally neutral. And God and the devil were battling it out. And so they didn't like sex and marriage either. They lived lives of poverty. Actually, St. Francis was responding to, to them. This led up to John Hus and John uh, Wycliffe, the Johns of the 14th and the 13th century, who were burned because they wanted um, individuals to read the scripture and interpret it for themselves. They're really the forerunners of Martin Luther. And you often see these wonderful stories about uh, the holiness of John Wycliffe and John Hus because it gives more legitimacy to the Reformation. So Martin Luther in the 15th century. Why did the Protestant Reformation of Luther, Zwingli, Calvin, who were all... Uh, cooperating with their governments to reform the church and bring it under the German government or the Swiss government. The Episcopalians, by the way, the English, were the only ones where the king forced the Reformation so that he would be in charge of the local church, which he and his successors are to this very day. But why did that get purchased? Well, it got steam because of the sins of the clergy, especially the Pope and the Curie in Rome. You know, if you look at, well, not all of these, but the Donatists, certainly, the Waldensians, the, Hus, the uh, John Hus, uh, the conciliar movement of the 14th century, and ultimately the granddaddy of Maul, the Protestant Reformation. The ideas often are um, deeply flawed. But what really gives them power is the failure of the church in its own moral reform. You know, the problem of reform for the church is when something as ruinous as the Protestant Reformation, which blew up the church 15 centuries uh, into history, uh, it really just gave uh, church leaders a bad taste for reform. After the Council of Trent, the longest council on record, um, it was, I, what was it, three more centuries and maybe a decade until the church tried another reforming council at Vatican I. 
And they only called that because of the French Revolution. I know this is a lot of history shoved into the Cliff Notes version, but we have a lot of experience of reform, positive reform and failed reform, true reform and false reform. Catholics have all the flavors. Well, in this Vatican Council I, the idea was that reaffirming the infallibility of the Pope would be the best work, a bulwark against uh, moral relativism, which is, really comes to us out of the 18th and 19th centuries. The idea of liberalism in the church, where we all get a vote on what the truth is and who the leaders are. And so its papal primacy is not simply about the teaching authority of the church. It's the bulwark that protects us from everything that seems to blow up all of our Protestant neighbors. How many different kinds of Lutherans are there right now? And why don't they like each other? So this is the problem of Christianity. It's always about personal reform and institutional reform. Why is reform so hard? Well, the Second Vatican Council, which oddly enough is coming under fire recently, is whether it's a legitimate council, which is a bizarre assertion about the Second Vatican Council. But in the dogmatic constitution on the church, Lumum Gentium, it says, the church embracing sinners in her bosom is at the same time holy and always in need of being purified and incessantly pursues the path of penance and renewal. You know, the church always prefers preaching self-reform. Why don't people reform? What is going on? Well, my answer is pretty simple. Ever try to lose 10 pounds and keep it off? Change is hard, but that's what the gospel is about today in Matthew. So let's turn there. Wow, do we just have a whirlwind tour through church reform at the institutional level, religious life, weird sex from the first five centuries and well, coming on to the modern weird sex that we have. But it's all really rooted in Jesus's ministry. So you have to understand the context for today's gospel where Jesus tells the leaders of Jerusalem a parable about a man who has a vineyard, uh, supposed to get some fruit from the vineyard, sends his servants to get the fruits. They're, they're beaten and, and thrown away. Uh, then he sends his own son. What do they do? They kill his own son. What is the owner of the vineyard going to do? He asks the leaders of Israel. Well, as it always, go back to the Gospel of Matthew. Find chapter 21 and read the stories leading up to this parable. And then it makes it very clear what Jesus is talking about. So how does chapter 21 in Matthew start? Hey, you've heard this story. Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on the back of a donkey. People lay branches at his feet. They throw coats under the donkey's feet. Hosanna, son of David. And he pops off the donkey and he runs up the steps into the temple. I'm kind of making that part up. But he, he goes into the temple and what's he start doing? He makes a whip and starts getting the money changes out of there and all the, all the nonsense that's going along. He says, my father's house is a house of prayer and you've made it a den of thieves. And so he's been preaching reform for how many years in his preaching? Now he's showing up in Jerusalem. And what's going on? My friends, heads are rolling. The house is getting cleaned. He sees a fig tree by the side of the road and he curses it because it doesn't bear any fruit. 
his disciples are going, wow, you're, you're just like, need a cup of coffee or something. Because this is over the top. Jesus is provoking a confrontation with the leaders. He's ramping up to the Paschal mystery. This is why he's crucified. And so the chief priests and the elders come down and they confront them. And, he said, and they, they say to Jesus, by what authority do you do all of this? And they're responding to the cleansing of the temple and all of these things. He goes, I'll answer your question, you answer mine first. Where was John the Baptist's baptism from? Was heavenly or of human origin? Well, here's what the scripture says, just before the parable from today. Well, if we say of human origin, we fear the crowd, for they all regard John as a prophet. So they said to Jesus in reply, we don't know. And he himself, that is Jesus said, neither shall I tell you by what authority I do these things. Just think of the pickle he put him in. If they say human authority, then the crowd will say, he was a saint, you didn't understand that. But if they say divine authority, the crowd will say, well, why didn't you get baptized and repent? You know, it's the problem of being a leader. And so then Jesus tells them the parable about the vineyard owner. And remember in that story, there's the owner, there's the tenants, there's the servants, and then the owner's son. And so, you know by now, the vineyard's always Israel. The tenants are the Israelites. The servants are the prophets who the master sends because the fruits of Israelite life, like the fruits of Catholic life, is supposed to be about living this divine way of living. But when you're called to reform and look at living up to who you said you would be, they finally crucified Jesus. Uh, it, it's not hard to figure this allegory out and its application. And if you turn the page to chapter 22, you start seeing the ramp up to the Last Supper and Jesus's crucifixion. You know, Jesus, with most of his teaching, remember typology, Jesus is looking to the Old Testament um, and he is dusting it off and reworking it into his parables. But what he says about the prophets, about the servants, that's the allegory who get beaten by the, the tenants in the vineyard. Well, you know, Isaiah, who has had this huge impact on Christian history, he was sawed, sawed in half uh, by a king. That's gotta be a bad way to go, to get sawn, it, sawn in half. Jeremiah, he got bullied and beaten all the time. They threw him into a cistern, they pulled him out of the cistern. The Babylonians kicked the king out of Jerusalem. Jeremiah was taken as a captive by some of the survivors who were escaping the Babylonians, where in Egypt he keeps prophesying to them because he just cannot get God off his mind. So they stone him to death down there. So it's just, do you really want to be told what you don't want to be told? So what kind of father sends his son into this danger? Well, you already know the answer to that. God is not like us. His ways are not our ways and how he does things are his own way and so i want to take a little time and i want to talk about what's happening in the church right now because we are at a time when we're talking about true and false reform it is a catholic axiom coming right out of the second vatican council the church is holy and always in need of reform 
starting with number one. Yes, all of us are in need of reform. And because we're sinners, that church as an institution reflects the sin. You know, um, priests, bishops, popes come from someplace. They come generally from the laity because overwhelmingly, at least in the Western church, priests don't have kids. They are not making little priests. So we're a reflection somehow of the health of the entire body of the church. And people are always concerned about reform. Everybody sees things that need to be changed. But Cardinal Avery Dulles, who was one of our great American theologians said, there's two basic errors about reform. The first is that we assume that because the church is divinely instituted, it never needs reforming. Our long history of reform, which I glossed over to start out this podcast, belies that error. The church reforms successfully or unsuccessfully in every century of its existence. Why? Because the church is divine, but I I know I'm preaching to the choir. We're so human. Complacency is the enemy. Why is it hard to lose 10 pounds? Why don't the chief priests listen to Jesus? Why is it that we're so intimidated by the thought of change? Error number two, according to Cardinal Dulles. They used to say about Cardinal Dulles, who I once listened to lecture, and I thought he was pretty good, but they made a joke of him. They said there was dull, duller, and dullus, but I didn't think he was dull, but it's, it's, a, it's a joke they would tell about him. Anyway, Cardinal Dulles says, this is error two, that reform is, attacks or undermines the essentials of Catholic Christianity. This would not be reform, but dissolution. This is what the Protestant Reformation is, or Hus and Wycliffe and the Waldensians and the Cathars. They just wanted to change what the church actually believed and have been very successful. There's a reason to get to the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, where they don't even, their, their idea of God is so different from ours. There's more than just Reformation going on there. It's an entirely made up religion. That's why they have their own prophet, uh, John Smith. You see, but for us, we're bound by our tradition, our scriptures, our creeds, our dogmas, our divinely instituted hierarchical office, papal infallibility, sacraments and liturgy and worship. And then to attack the highest authorities in the church, pope or councils, is to be part of the second era. And that's what's happening now, oddly enough, crazily enough. It's not that popes can't be wrong, but they're still pope. And just to go back through history, um, popes can cause reforms because they're crooks and they're trying to make their kid the pope or uh, they're stealing money. Um, But popes never really get accused of trying to change the, uh, the content of faith. It's happened to this pope, oddly enough, but we're going to talk about that. So when you listen to the gospel about the vineyard and the owner and the servants and the tenants and the son, um, think about it in the context of what's happening in the church today. And now let's talk about the moral reform that's going on in the church. Purification is the key, reforming morals. Hey, if you have not noticed, the Holy Father recently sacked the most powerful cardinal in the Vatican, Cardinal Angelo Becciu, Sostituto for the Vatican Secretary of State, 
under Benedict and Francis, though he, he got let out of that job, which was, I think, the beginning of uh, rolling heads in Rome. Um, you know, the only reason we know, I bet you, was sacked because he had the chutzpah to call a, a press conference because he couldn't believe why the Pope would sack someone as magnificent as him. And so this is just based on articles referenced in the, in the uh, podcast notes. But this is Cardinal Beccio's quotes at a press conference that he called. And so he's talking about his meeting with Pope Francis. In our meeting, the Holy Father told me that I favored my brothers, and he means his blood brothers, and their companies with money from the Secretariat of State. Um, and so here's what he admitted to. Uh, the Pope said that he had sent about 100,000 euros to a, a charitable organization that his brother ran, ran in Sardinia. So his brother's taken a salary from this organization. Beccio gives him 100,000 bucks. Well, we all know what the charitable, uh, the charitable dodge is and how much of money people give is given, taken by the leaders of these so-called charities. The second thing he complained about was that, and this is the part I really liked, when he was the papal nuncio in Cuba, he wanted to put some new fixtures into the papal uh, nuncio's residence there in Havana, and he spent $230,000 uh, on, on those fixtures. Go around your house, count up your microwaves, your hot plates, you know, whatever you think a fixture is, figure out how you get 230,000 bucks out of them. But then here's what he said. Excuse me, but I didn't know anyone else. He said in a newspaper interview that came out Friday morning, it was obvious I'd use my brother's company. Yes, he paid $230,000 to his brother to put appliances into, his Italian brother put appliances in his house in Cuba. The work wasn't even finished under me, but the ambassador who followed me, who was so happy with the service, he called the company again when he was later sent to Egypt. I don't see the crime. I don't see the crime. He's even getting other archbishops to give his brother business. You know, something really wrong with the guy. I would do use an Italian accent telling these stories, but I'm afraid I would offend my Italian listeners because... Corruption isn't limited to the Italian people. But this guy, wow. And he said it himself. They say the trigger was because he was involved in this shady real estate deal, which had been very well covered with the Catholic press. And you could see it online at New Out Catholic Out New Outlook Online there with the diocese. Um, and uh, in fact, in May, the beginning of May, the Pope sacked five people from the finance department because of their involvement. And what I'd say is it looks like the Pope is just swimming upstream uh, to this whole little enterprise that's been going on. You remember Cardinal Pell was sent there from Australia to clean up the Vatican finances because they wanted to get a non-Italian in there. And Pell's a pretty pugnacious guy. Um, but Pell got removed off that after he clashed with Cardinal Beshew and his the old guard, they call it. And then, mysteriously, he gets charged in Australia with child abuse. And I don't know if you followed that case, which he was convicted at the trial court, uh, affirmed at the Court of Appeals, but the Supreme Court of Australia unanimously overturned it because there was no evidence. It was all just a set-up deal. It, if you remember the 
guy that says he was abused was, quote, an altar server with another kid who's dad. And uh, Pell allegedly comes in wearing his miter and his mask clothes, catches him drinking uh, altar wine, says, you boys must be punished. Let the sexual abuse begin. Uh, well, you know, if you know anything about sexual abuse, that's never how it happens. That is a line, a, a script from a porn movie. Just take out the archbishop bishop and put in the cable guy. That is not how sex abuse happens in the church. It's always much more sinister. And it's this long-term kind of thing where the, where the cler cleric as, insinuates himself into somebody's family. But here's what Pell said about it. Pell said he did not have evidence of a link, but he suspected that uh, uh, the man who swore he'd been sexually abused by Pell as a 13-year-old choir boy had been used. Pell again seemed to hint at a link in a statement last week in which he thanked and congratulated Francis for firing Bethshu. I hope the cleaning of the stables continues in both the Vatican and Victoria, Pell said, referring to his home state of Victoria, Australia, where he was convicted. Wow! It's really interesting when all of this darkness comes out from under. Just because nothing's being said doesn't mean bad things aren't happening. I say rejoice when it comes up above the surface and you get a, a, a subject it to the light of reason and the judicial process. You know, Pope Francis has been on a roll for several years now. I don't know if you've noticed it, but bet you was only the most uh, surprising of all of the people that he has, he has uh, canned. You know, bet you, you can't get higher in the Vatican than bet you without being the Pope. But it's not like the cardinals have been sacred with him. He accepted the resignation of Scottish Cardinal Keith O'Brien in 2015 because he admitted to sexual misconduct. He removed Theodore McCarrick, who claimed he didn't remember any sexual misconduct. He forced the resignation of Cardinal Angelo Sodano, who used to be the substitute, the substitute under St. John Paul. And he's going to be involved in this McCarrick report. Don't kid yourself. He was removed as the Dean of Cardinals of the uh, College of Cardinals because he took so little action on the sexual abuse in Chile, which so ticked off Francis, the Argentine. Then in May 2020, like I said, the Pope sacked these Vatican administrators who were involved in this shady London real estate deal, which has not completely come to light, but it's being prosecuted. But like I said, he's swimming upstream to the people that are higher up. You know, it's one of the things he did. There is this Vatican congregation that oversees all of Vatican finances. And there's this board. Half the board now is women because he has appointed bank heads and board of directors and these uh, bigwig European women to be on the board of Vatican finances to oversee this reform. So it's not like he's letting just clerics look at it. Um, he's getting the laity involved in this and overwhelmingly women. Um, oh, I, did I, I almost forgot. He forced the resignations of uh, various American bishops and demanded and received the resignations of the entire Episcopal College of Chile because of their bungling on the sex abuse scandal there and feeding Francis lies. Wow. 
over the course of his papacy. Pope Francis started out, because he was sent in there to reform, where first he preached to the curia in Beshu, and he talked about things like spiritual amnesia, forgetting your sins, pretending that you're purer than you really are. He castigated the sins of bishops and cardinals about reform. He invited them to prayer. He lectured them on sin and the importance of reform. Zero apparent effect. No changes. Now, after preaching, trying to be a good example, remember, he doesn't live in the Vatican apartments. He lives in this little place where all the priests live called Casa Marta. Now, heads are rolling, criminal prosecutions are being ramped up, and all of, so the Vatican doesn't have any prisons. He has to rely on prosecutors from the Italian state. How well are these people connected to the Italian state? I guess we're all going to find out. So, my gosh, moral reform is in the air. In response, how have Catholics supported Pope Francis? Well... Let's go back to the story about the servants who are beaten and the son that's killed. Because if you listen to the Catholic Twitter sphere and some of these crazies that are out there, and people in our own parish listen to them, which is so disappointing. But they question the legitimacy of the Francis papacy, whether Pope Benedict's really the true pope. Um, they question the legitimacy of the Second Vatican Council. Some have charged him as an idolater. You know, that statue of so-called Pacamama, the press named that Pacamama. No Amazonian ever did. It's all made up. They had this picture of all these people bowing down. And it was like you expected to see an idol, but nothing was there. Uh, and so they tag him as an idol worshiper. Why do people have to shout down the voice of the reformer? You know, Cardinal Avery Dulles, one of our great Catholic cardinals, who was never a bishop, he was just a Jesuit priest, but respected widely. He wrote in an article, which I posted in the show notes, if you ever want to read it, um, about true and false reform. And here's what he wrote. The church must be herself and must not strive to become what non-believers might like her to be. Her first responsibility is to preserve intact the revelation and the means of grace that have been entrusted to her. Her second responsibility is to transmit the faith in its purity and make it operative in the lives of her members. Her third responsibility is to help persons who are not her, yet her members and human society as a whole to benefit from the redemptive work of Christ. False reforms, I conclude, are those that fail to respect the imperatives of the gospel and the divinely given traditions and structures of the church or which impair ecclesial communion and tend rather towards schism. Would-be reformers often proclaim themselves to be prophets, but show their true colors by their lack of humility, their impatience, and their disregard for sacred scripture and tradition. Your Holy Father is a very patient God, but thankfully that has its limits. So my friends, the good news, dust off your resumes, it looks like there's some new job openings in Rome. God be praised. This has been Oral Valley Catholic.